We good, Jimmy? Thank God. I hate looking like Scorpion and sounding like Bane. I can't believe the board of directors decided to mandate everyone on the island wear masks again. Quarantine is over, dang it! What is it now, Jimmy? Seriously? They want me to read their announcement on the air? Ugh. Fine. Put me on for a second. Effective July 20th, 2020. All employees working on or around Monster Island will be required to wear masks at all times. This is an effort to slow down the spread of COVID-19 and prevent any of our guests and older kaiju from contracting the virus. There will be some exceptions made as mentioned in the memo published this morning. Please submit any and all questions to HR where they will be answered in a timely manner. As always, thank you for helping us find a better way forward. We will begin selling masks in the gift shop starting Monday. The price per mask will be $25.99 and our employees will receive a 3% discount when they use their official employee key cards at checkout. A percentage of the proceeds will go toward maintaining and preserving the island. Signed, the Monster Island Board of Directors. <sighs> I'm glad that's over with. I know their envoy, oh, what's that guy's name? William H. George III or something, delivered more memos. Is it not enough that I retweet these memos when the board posts them on Twitter? Ugh. They told you something big that's not in a memo? What? A special premiere of Godzilla vs. Kong in November on the island? Jimmy... That's so crazy, I'm not even going to bring it up on the air. No buts! Anyway, I'll post those other memos on the website, which I guess includes the one about the stupid new color-coded uniform jumpsuits they have for everyone. I can't stand wearing this. Joe and Joy are almost here? Good. Live from Ogasawara, this is The Monster Island Film Vault, Episode 22, The Matters vs. Daimaji. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to The Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment. Through Tokusatsu, I am your host, the curator of the vault, Nathan Marchand. And I am delighted to say, I've mentioned this in the previous episodes, a couple of my friends who have not been here in a really long time have finally returned to the island. My friends, Joe and Joy Metter. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us back on the island. <laughs> How'd you get here today? I I don't know. It's kind of like a lost thing where well, you know, it's one of those you have to like board a train and then a plane and then a boat and then I have no idea. Oh, so what you're saying is is you took the traditional route that all the tourists who come to Ogasawara, that's what they do. 
They take a train to the port and then they ride the boat for a day to the island. Yeah, yeah. no, we decided to make a vacation of it. Yeah. To a volcano. Yeah. Volcano? There, <laughs> there was some sizzling going on earlier. To, oh, yeah, yeah. The floor is lava type thing. Yeah, yeah, that is unfortunate to the... I'm glad we moved the studio away from that. Yeah. <laughs> um, we do have a nice mountain here on the island, but thankfully it's not a volcano. Really, Jimmy, you beg to differ? You're a NASA engineer, not a seismologist. Whatever. Anyway, actually, you're not the only ones who have come back. You've also brought along Teddy Kong. <laughs> yeah, Teddy Kong is here, and we have acquired a Bitzilla. Yes, yeah, so uh, we have one old friend and a new friend here with us today. Yeah, Your Bit- lovely little dachshund. <laughs> yeah, Bitzilla is uh, more quiet unless he sees people go by, but he might try and attack your feet. Yes. Oh, see, he's already made the first of his cameo appearances. Yeah, you're lucky that the... Did you see camera out there? It's okay. You're lucky I was able to convince the board to give me the proper permit so you could have the dogs on here. Yeah. I imagine it's an insurance risk with all the other monsters. Well, you know, after all, aren't all dogs emotional support dogs? Depends on the dog, I would say. I've uh, I've seen a few that wouldn't qualify. I've seen a few that need emotional support. Yeah, I've uh, we also have one here on the island called King Caesar, who's a lion dog. Well, I don't know if I would necessarily call him a emotional support animal. He did enough. he did help defeat Mechagodzilla once, though. That was nice. Hi, this is Nathan realizing he needs to stop abusing that Futurian editing technology for stuff like this because I keep forgetting to mention what the Toku topic is going to be for these episodes. It's a habit I need to break as a broadcaster slash podcaster. Anyway, the Toku topics for this episode will be the Sengoku period in Japanese history and the coming of Christianity to Japan. And now back to the episode. But the reason I have you guys here today, I made the invitation, I'm glad you made a vacation of this. I wanted to have you here to begin what I am calling the Daimajin Days. We will be looking at the Daimajin Trilogy from 1966, starting with the titular first film. But before we scurry on over to the screening room for me to show that to you guys, due to contractual obligations, I have to read Jimmy's entertaining info dump. But in the meantime, through the magic of podcasting, after that's finished, we will have watched the movie. You ready? Good. Let's do this. Daimajin, or Arkatsuma, or simply Majin, is a wrathful kami trapped under the statue of a mountain god. After a giant nail is driven into the statue's head and Kozasa beseeches him for help, the kami inhabits the statue, bringing it to life so it may reap vengeance on Samanosuke. Tadafumi Hanabusa is the brave and heroic young son of a good lord murdered by Samanosuke. He and his sister, the kind and self-sacrificial Kozasa, seek to reclaim their birthright ten years after their parents' murder when they were children and free their people. Kogenta is the tough yet pragmatic vassal who took the lord's children with him into the woods after Samanosuke's betrayal and now seeks to help them in their quest. The pious and faithful priestess Shinobu proclaims the coming wrath of the mountain god and encourages the youths to overthrow the tyrants. 
Samanosuke is the traitorous and brutal vassal who murdered Lord Hanabusa and rules the land with an iron fist, enslaving and oppressing the people. He has aspirations of conquering the capital. The human and kaiju plotlines are mostly separate until the final act of the film when they unify. However, Daimajin's presence is felt throughout and serves as a driving force for some of the characters. Samanosuke is the problem, although Daimajin becomes the problem briefly at the end. The protagonists spend much of their time rescuing each other and avoiding his soldiers. Shinobu frequently says that people must pray to the mountain god for deliverance, which ultimately gets her killed by Samanosuke. In order to crush the people's hope, he sends soldiers to smash the Daimajin statue with hammers, but it's unaffected. They drive a nail into the statue's head and it bleeds, summoning a storm and earthquake that kills them. The problem is solved when Kozasa beseeches Daimajin to help, even attempting to throw herself from the top of a waterfall to do so. The statue comes to life, goes to the village, and kills Samanosuke and his soldiers. His wrath turns to the villagers, but he is placated by Kozasa's tearful pleading and turns to dust. The script by Tetsuro Yoshida is a simple court drama slash adventure tale with a focused story and a handful of characters. The special effects supervised by Yoshiyuki Kuroda are allowed to shine thanks to the cost-saving measure of recycling sets from Daiei Films' Rishin Chanbara or Samurai Films, which look excellent. The Daimajin suit worn by Chikara Hashimoto is a marvel. Its stiffness works to the actor's advantage given that Daimajin is supposed to be made of stone, and it helps make his movement sharper. The miniatures rival anything seen in a Toho film at the time. The on-location filming is impressive, especially the waterfall. The transition from location shooting to the sets is seamless. Other techniques used included rotoscope, animation, and matte paintings, all of which look great. This is a dark and deathly serious period fantasy film with a tremendous amount of gravity. This is an experimental film because, with a few possible exceptions, there had never been a period kaiju film before. Combining the kaiju and chanbara genres was a bold move at the time. It was also a bit risky not making a kaiju film for the family or children audience. While the film is in keeping with the chanbara genre, it expands style for the kaiju genre by being set in feudal Japan and borrowing heavily from samurai films. By doing so, it becomes one of the most distinctly Japanese films and trilogies in the kaiju genre. Humanoid monsters, or kaijin, were also uncommon at the time, making Daimajin, the monster, unique. The film was made to capitalize on the popularity of both kaiju and chanbara films at the time, but it was clearly made to entertain both the general adult audience and fans of those genres. It was made for 100 million yen, but box office figures are unavailable for the film. It did well enough that two sequels were made the same year, though. The film won a Japanese cinematography Miura Award. It was licensed in 1967 to syndicated television by American International Television and retitled Majin Monster of Terror after a brief exhibition in Honolulu, Hawaii the year before. While it has faded into semi-obscurity, it is beloved by kaiju fans. Several forces are at play. The antagonist's disbelief in the supernatural clashes with the faith and spirituality of Shinobu. This is illustrated in the scene where Samanosuke holds Shinobu at gunpoint. The oppressed peasants are vacillating between hope and hopelessness. The Daimajin statue bars a demon from escaping. The usurpation and murder of Lord Hanabusa was a common practice at this time in Japanese history, when a vassal could overthrow the ruler. 
Vengeance and Mercy are at odds as Daimajin, who almost seems like a force of nature, wreaks havoc in the village. A central theme of the film is faith. Shinobu is unwavering in her belief that the mountain god will deliver the people from oppression. Similarly, Kozasa offers to sacrifice herself twice to convince Daimajin to act on their behalf. Tyranny is shown to be a tremendous evil. Birthrights are reinforced as Tadafume and Kozasa seek to reclaim their father's lordship. Daimajin, while morally ambiguous himself, dispenses justice on the oppressors and shows mercy to the villagers after Kozasa covers a child he would have crushed, implying her purity stayed his wrath. Oh man, I can't wait to discuss this in the Toku Talk. Let's go! Well, that was an interesting experience because we had to take Teddy Kong and Bitzilla in there with us because the dogs are not allowed to be unsupervised on the island. Also, because there's been a mask mandate put in, the poor dogs had to wear COVID masks. Teddy is not having fun with this, I can tell. No, he is not. He is um, quite vocal about it. I can tell. But it's one of the many many mandates that the board of directors has been sending down from their lofty little position at the top of the mountain, including the new uniforms. Oh, yes. I was going to ask you, are you just a fan of bubblegum, or is this a special occasion for the lovely pink whatever that is? It's a jumpsuit. We used to have the cool orange ones that had pretty much been around since the island was started 20 plus years ago, and... So instead of orange pumpkins, you're now like pink bubblegum balls? Yes, unfortunately, I have no trading cards for you. Darn. <laughs> At least they don't spray these things to smell like bubblegum. That would be interesting, to say the least. Uh, you know, you spoke that out loud on recording. They can't fire me. Anyway. Hey, hey Teddy. Hi, Teddy. <laughs> there's, there's no reason to go lick him. He's not a bubblegum. <laughs> I know he looks like one. Yes. So does Jimmy. Jimmy's not too fond of it either. Ironically, everybody who's working anywhere near his garage where all the robots that he's rebuilding and stuff are, he's still working on Mechanicong and on stuff like that. They're all dressed in red. See what I mean? He's clearly seen every episode of Star Trek. Red shirt jokes abound. Anyway. Well, at least there's no pink shirts. Not yet, but... (laughs) I'm surprised there isn't at this point. (laughs) I mean, pink is just red and white mixed together, so... That's true. You know, we're one step away from being red shirts. So, funky uniforms aside, (laughs) we're here to talk about Dimagine. This was actually the first time you guys had seen this, and I specifically wanted to have the two of you on this, especially you, Joe, because I know you're very fond of samurai. Yes, yes, I... And so I figured, the I know Joe and Joy are not necessarily into the whole kaiju thing, but I think they could get into Daimajin, because it's more like a samurai movie that just happens to have a monster in it, but in this case, the monster is a stone statue that comes to life. Yeah, after evil samurai take over a town for several years. Ten years. The interesting thing for this type of film is that it's a quote-unquote monster film, but the quote-unquote monster doesn't even show up till like, 
in the uh, last what, like twenty minutes. 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. The, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, this particular you know, genre of film is called Chanbara, which means samurai film. And Daiei Studios that made these films was actually very well known about that. That was those, those were good money makers for them. At that time, Chanbara samurai films were a lot like westerns were in the United States. They were just very popular. Yeah. And there's a lot of parallels that can be drawn between American Western films and Chambara samurai film. You know, heck, yeah. the, one of the most famous Westerns ever produced was inspired by a samurai film. Yeah, the Seven the, Samurai. The, yeah, which then led to The Magnificent Seven. Yeah. So, as I said, lots of parallels to be drawn. And apparently somebody walked out the door! We're recording, dang it! Anyway... Jimmy's mechanical interns getting out of <laughs> You have interns? Oh, so you're denying the, that you have robot interns? Right. You know we've had a few androids visit, correct? Just saying. Oh, shut up. You're wearing the same lightish red uniform. Moving on. And you're right. The monster, so to speak, doesn't show up until those last... 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah, somewhere around there. But I would say Majin's presence is certainly felt throughout it, especially at the beginning. Yeah. But you don't really see him until later. I've actually been doing a bit of reading on that. And the funny thing is, this is a complaint I've heard a lot, even from people within the kaiju fandom. They complain that the, the best parts of the movies are the last 20 minutes or so when the monsters actually show up. And I've actually found out that those are actually tropes in Japanese storytelling. Yeah. Particularly if you look at kabuki theater and no theater. The way they would structure things is you would have these very long, often contemplative beginnings, a lot of exposition, and then the finales are explosive. And that definitely is true here. So the thing I really appreciated, like, cinematography, I can't say the words. Cinematography, yes. That word. Um, How they filmed it. (laughs) The thing I really appreciate with some of the older movies, especially from Japan, is the real, like, it's not cheap, crappy graphic. It's like real location, which makes it all the more powerful because it's tangible. Yes. They were certainly switching between sets and actual on-location photography in this. And it and seemed I, pretty seamless. It was pretty seamless, I was but when the, when we did get to the scene where they're going up to Daimajin's mountain and there's a waterfall, that's a real waterfall. Yeah, you, you can't fake that waterfall. No. Not unless you have a giant budget. <laughs> you, not back then. Now you could. Oh yeah. But even you can then, fake everything now. It's just it's a different feel. It's a different reality. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not the uncanny valley. Thank God. <laughs> Since we're on the the subject of that, let's stay on the subject of the cinematography. We'll talk about the special effects as well. I think the effects in this are actually pretty fantastic. I mentioned to you guys when we were watching it that my favorite shot in the entire movie, and you know, know, you'll get used to this because you're coming back for the sequels, is when Daimajin has his hand in front of his face. Because when he comes to life, he's still stone. Then he brings his hand up in front of his face, and it does this wipe. And it's a se- absolutely seamless white. As his fist comes up and past his face, it turns to flesh. And it is absolutely fantastic. It was so stunning. I don't know that you could think I've done that any better now with today's technology than they did then. Yeah. 
Ah. I, I think it's more impressive that it was done like 50 years ago. 1966, man. So 44 years ago. No, 54 years ago. <laughs> My math was off. <laughs> As I said, it's more impressive that they did that 50 years ago. Wait, yeah. wait did Jimmy do that math for you? Of course you would deny that. I get it. You're the engineer. I'm the English major. I can't math. You can't English. Actually, I take that back. You can. I don't know how, but you can. I've read your blogs. <laughs> anyway. You don't get into NASA without learning to English first. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy's story is interesting, to say the least. But anyway, the other thing that I really like about this is, yes, it's a suit, but unlike most kaiju actor suit actor performances you actually get to see this actor's eyes yeah it's it's an even more genuine performance now the mask isn't very expressive and i think that was on purpose because it's supposed to be like say like a kabuki mask that is not expressive it's it's static but you can see the actor's eyes i think that actually makes the performance even better and the only other time i can think of besides the daimajin movies where something like this was attempted where it was a giant monster where you could see the suit actor's eyes was war of the gargantuas which will be covered on the show a little bit later this year and i loved your reaction joy when we get to where daimajin is stomping into the village to exact vengeance upon the bad guys And the camera is situated right behind some of the soldiers in a tower. And you can see Daimajin off in the distance a little bit. And they're like, oh my gosh, it's a statue. And it's coming after us. Majin, oh my gosh. And at just the right time, like there's this long pause, like Majin just stops. And I don't know how long it was, but it was pretty long. It was this pregnant pause. And then he just turns sharply and looks at him. And they're like, ah! And they freak out because he looked at him. And then he starts coming straight for him. (laughs) <laughs> and you you had pretty much the same reaction, except you were quite delighted. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it, and boom! <laughs> it, it was perfection, I have it to say. It was, I love that. And I also agree with the eyes, because I was actually like really impressed with... I mean, basically, the only thing you could see besides the actions was the eyes. And it really made the performance because it blended the stone statue with a quote-unquote live human being. Mm-hmm. Like, I actually, like, wrote one of my two yeah. notes for the whole movie. And apparently, Teddy Kong agrees. Like, well, I, I know, I know. Um, Gamera was messing with you. It's okay. <laughs> Yeah, he was weirdly excited by Gamera, I'm just saying. He, he knew that you guys came here to watch a Die movie, but, it, but unfortunately it wasn't Gamera. Yeah. Because it's the same Gamera studio. Was... It's, I know that's weird to think about, because I know you've seen the MST3K episodes for Ga- for those old Gamera movies. Yes. It's kind of weird to think that the same studio produced Die Machine, because it is as no, not Gamera as you can get. It's okay. stunning how much quality is in Daimujin versus Gamera. <laughs> anyway, like... your note. Okay, sorry. Now that we have uh, Teddy come calm down for the second, somehow like you're still able to really see the emotion in his actions, which is really crazy impressive because really the only thing you can see are the eyes and then his like arm movements and things like that. And even that is relatively few, honestly. Yeah, I mean, really... He doesn't gesture a whole lot. 
No, he doesn't. No. But it has to be the eyes that mix of stone and flesh. The eyes do say it all. Yeah. It's like, you're next. <laughs> yes. He could really pick up the emotion. And yeah, okay, it could be also because he had a scary, like, I'm angry face. I was just really impressed. With yeah. How Which they, is, uh, uh, with that, but that's only when he's flesh. Yeah, the, I know. When the stone face is very <laughs> blank. Yes. Very it's, it actually looks like the stone had been chipped away and there's no nose and there's yeah, barely eyes. Yeah, it's very, eyes. like, it's, faded almost. It's very, like, ancient faded, not, yes. not no longer there. Yeah, which is actually very fitting. And I have a Japanese listener named Kyoi Toshi who was helping out not only my show, but several other podcasts to know some things about Japanese culture that you know, a lot of us as Americans don't really know. I mean, I've been here for about a year or so now on Ogasawara, and I'm still learning things, let me tell you. There's a common misnomer that Daimajin is a samurai. He's not. It's actually, according to her, Dime Machine is actually based on what's called a kofun. Let me read to you the, the message that she sent me about this. She said, Dime Machine is based on the little figures found in many kofun, generally keyhole-shaped tombs, Haniwa, specifically the ones of warriors. This was around the 3rd to 6th century AD. These use Chinese-style armor and swords called keiko. Samurai had their beginnings around 700 AD, but didn't really begin to be defined in the modern sense of the word until around the 9th to 10th century. Before that, they would just be bushi, or warrior. The Haniwa were terracotta figures based on similar figures found in China around the same time. You talked a little about the sword, because weirdly enough, it's... Very it's, prominent on, on him, but he never uses he it. He never draws the sword. He's yeah. always beating things with a stone fist. <laughs> uh, his sword is a chokuto, a Chinese-style straight sword. Uh-huh. Not a later tachi or katana, which is very interesting. Armor was iron-based keiko Chinese-style. So yeah. the he's not a samurai. It's something else entirely. And I think it's interesting that essentially Daimajin is a giant version of these little statues that, I mean, I would love to know a little bit more, but I'm guessing if they were put around tombs, they were perhaps meant to be protectors, protectors of some kind. And Daimajin is a giant protector. Interestingly, we do have Daimajin here on the island. He is in the middle of the Sarazawa Memorial Park. He hasn't moved in years, though. He's just hanging out there. Well, if he only moves when there's great evil and somebody pleading, I'm glad that he hasn't moved. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, isn't that kind of dangerous, having him on the island? Have you seen everything else that's on here? Okay, fair. (laughs) They have a camera. (laughs) (laughs) That sounded very, uh, we have a cave troll. (laughs) It was like, it did seem rather mean-ish, like, we have a Hulk. <laughs> we yeah. have a camera. <laughs> we, we have, have a, a camera. <laughs> is, is King Kong still here? Oh, yeah, he's still here. <laughs> okay, so there's King Kong, there's a camera. I don't think he's any more dangerous. Well, he's all, Wait. What helps is he's smaller. So did either of you kind of wonder, we watched the subtitled version of it today, and the name Majin was not translated, and the subtitle still said Majin. The name actually means, weirdly enough, giant devil or giant demon god. Huh. Yeah. Dai Majin. 
So okay. when they were talking about having to ward off the Majin, they were talking about warding off a devil, a demon. essentially. Yeah. A demon. When you attach Dai to something in Japanese, it means large. However, the weird thing is he's almost never called that. In fact, in the first movie, he's mostly called Arakatsuma, but not Dai Majin. <laughs> Very rarely was it Dai Majin. And then similarly, and I have to admit, the first time I watched this movie with the subtitles, because we watched the Mill Creek release. These movies have been released a couple of times on Blu-ray and DVD, and this one is the Mill Creek set. So I don't know what the subtitles are like on the previous one, but it threw me off hearing the characters call Daimajin Kami, and then the subtitles have it as God Big G. It really threw me off, and I had to do a bit of research on that. I thought that it should have been a small G. Yeah, I would have probably been there with you too. And Kami are an integral part of Japanese religion and culture. We won't be getting into those today for the Tokotopic segment, but that's essentially what the Majin is. He's a Kami. But speaking of the Kami, you guys were cracking a few jokes about this, but with you know the beginning of the movie when we have the, the festival going on with Shinobu, I think is what the was was her name. Yeah, the, the, the priestess. priestess. It seems like from what I was gathering, the priestess was beseeching God to drive the evil spirit away, and the evil spirit was sealed inside the mountain under the statue. Mm-hmm. So when the warlord, for lack of a better term, decides to destroy the statue near the end of the movie, stupidly, <laughs> it releases the seal. Now the Majin makes more sense. The demon god comes and wreaks havoc. He mm-hmm. doesn't really care. That. Yeah. He doesn't care whether it's a villager or not. He, yeah. he just wreaks havoc. Yeah, which is, I think, is very interesting because it's, fr- throughout the entire film, they're always talking about how the Majin is a protector. No, they're saying the god of the mountain. The god of the mountain, yes, that's right. The god of the that's, mountain that's what, is what sealed yeah. the Majin. Mm-hmm. So the Majin got free because they broke the seal. He wreaked havoc in revenge, or he wreaked havoc, which ended up in revenge for the warlord taking out the lord's family. Mm-hmm. And the princess of the family somehow abates the demon god near the end. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is the way it's set up is that it looks like it was actually... Now that I think about it, this is actually kind of fascinating. All of these prayers from from the old priestess, and he never does anything. And then the Lord's daughter does it. And she pleads with the Majin once even offers to sacrifice herself if necessary. She just about jumps off of that waterfall that you love so much, Joy. (laughs) And the wild boy with the crazy hair, he keeps her from doing it. But then the Majin comes to life. Yeah. Which I think is rather interesting. It's not the priestess who does it, it's the princess. I'm wondering if it's because she's part of the family who was wronged. She's the one who really needs the justice, and it's not necessarily the priestess. I'm not sure it's about justice. I assumed it was because she was willing to... I, I think it was because she was willing to, to sacrifice herself. Yeah. And then she does the same... She makes the same offer later yeah. when he starts going after the villagers. After he has killed all of the, the villains, the bad guys. Yeah, and like some of the villagers. Herself... And, yeah, at least one villager. <laughs> yeah, she puts herself in between him and the boy to try and protect him. And like, again, not out of any selfish ambition or anything. It was truly just to protect this little boy that she had came to love as a little brother. 
because mm-hmm. we had seen him pretty early on in the film, and we find out that his mother had died, right? And his Dad's his father a was a slave, and all of this stuff. He managed to escape and was trying to find help. Yeah, there does seem to be a lot of mythology that overlaps with biblical stories. I, that was something I was I was always struck by every time I've seen this movie. It is strangely Old Testament yeah. in a lot of ways. I've talked with Reverend Mafune here a few times about that. He's the Monster Island chaplain, and he agrees with me on that. There's a lot of biblical parallels to be drawn in here, I would say, especially when you're talking about people being oppressed and being enslaved. Our two main characters, the children of the Lord, they're not quite Moses, but they have a similar thing where they go off into the wilderness for 10 years, they grow up, and then they come back and try to liberate everybody. And then... What it boils down to is God, in this case, Dimachine, being beseeched to bring vengeance upon the oppressors. And then he has to be stopped. I I, I can remember a story in, I believe it was Exodus, where Moses had to plead with God to keep him from wiping out the Israelites. It made me think of that. Yeah, I can see that. I think the similarities end with uh, them coming out of the wilderness. Yeah, they really do. But yeah, there was definitely some, like, oh, I wonder if somebody read Exodus before writing the story. Well, and given what we're going to be talking about in the third segment, it actually would make some strange sense. And then we have even more, I guess you could say, Christian imagery in this. And I will tell you, I did not expect this when I watched the movie the first time. I had never heard anyone talk about this. But we have crucifixions in this, or at least attempted crucifixions. That was actually a real surprise to me because I was commenting on the similarities and you're like, wait, just wait. <laughs> I'm like, what the crap? And you're like, yep. Because <laughs> you knew I was going to be like, wait, there's crosses? So yeah. you could definitely tell that, I mean, they definitely made it their own, but they definitely took little bits and pieces, whether it be truly from the Bible or from stories or just similar storylines. And then there's even, I would say, more layers kind of thrown upon this because our villain, Sonosuke, the guy who overthrows the Lord, yeah. Daimajin gets his mitts on him, doesn't just crush him in his hand or something like that. No, no, it's too easy. It's too easy. <laughs> I think it ties back to what caused the, I don't know if you want to get into this yet, but what caused the statue to come to life. Yeah, let's talk about that. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about that because we we talked about the we talked about Kozasa beseeching him. But before that, and I find this fascinating. We have all of these villains. You know, this is feudal Japan. And all the bad guys don't believe in Daimajin. They keep writing it off as just some crazy story. So I'm just like this is actually kind of fascinating. None of these bad guys seem to have any spiritual beliefs. They write all all of it off. Yeah. And they keep denying it, even when the evidence is right in front of them. They keep denying it. And the priestess keeps proclaiming it like she's this Old Old Testament prophet. You know, the wrath of God is coming. Well, and the the few that speak out against it, they're like, are you sure? Are you really sure we should be doing this? They're immediately silenced. Be like, basically, shut up. You don't know anything. You do what I tell you. Yeah. So there's all this denial. And then they start to get to the point where they think, okay, we need to do something about this. So they come up with this brilliant idea. Let's smash the statue. 
you did make a joke. It looked like one of them wasn't actually hitting the thing. He wasn't. It was like a good. He was at a distance, so he's probably like, oh, "It doesn't have to actually hit. It'll be okay." I mean, like you could, you could definitely like put your hand in front of it and not get hit. I'm yeah, just <laughs> yeah. But beside the point, so they go there and they have all these hammers and they're trying to smash the statue. So it's it's weird. They've been denying that the statue could do anything, but now suddenly they feel the need to destroy it. Well, they're trying to destroy the people's. Faith. Will to resist. Yeah. And will to resist and their common they, I don't think desire they cared, to fight. I don't think they cared about the faith because they don't care about spiritual beliefs. They were just like, these people are still resisting us, even after we've been lording over them for ten years. No. What is this common thread? It's the old lord, the son and daughter that's still left over. No, you're not playing with Gamera. And, <laughs> and it's this belief that the god of the mountain is going to protect us. And That's faith. Yeah. Yeah, but, but he's saying that they don't care about it. They don't they care don't, about the faith, but they're they're more caring about like, okay, this is the will it, to resist. Yeah, it's inspiring resistance. So so, the, so they, they go they to destroy it. Yeah. And then they try to smash it with hammers. Nothing. Doesn't dent it at all. Doing? Practically bounces right <laughs> off. It's nice rubber mallet work there, guys. Yeah. <laughs> and then what well, they get their leader, not Sanosuke, but the leader of this group of soldiers says, get a, a nail. So the idea is that you'll drive the nail into the rock and you can crack it. Yeah. So then they put the nail on Daimajin's forehead and they start hammering it in. And he starts to bleed. The statue starts to bleed and, and then they which, freak out. And at which point I said, talk about hitting the nail on the head. And my thought was, uh, you really can't get blood from a stone. Really? Mine was way more original. Oh, shut up. They're both old cliches. I'm telling you, man. I don't know what your deal is today. Do you really want to start something with me? Really, Jimmy? My wife is not as helpless as the woman in that story. And I can vouch for that, man. She knows how to fence. You want to deal with that? No, for the last time, you don't have a lightsaber! Although, given the kinds of crazy alien tech and everything we have on this island, who knows, maybe he built one. Disney's coming to take it from you, Jimmy. I don't know how to feel about your confidence. I, so. I agree, this new generation of Jedi is not here. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, speaking of Jedi, we totally forgot to bring up the really funny part where we've realized that Lucas... Yes! Yes. Oh George. my gosh! <laughs> I totally forgot about that. Yes. Yeah, the, uh, I, one it, of I know George Lucas was a huge fan of Kurosawa, but I am 110% sure he saw you know this particular Daimajin movie at the very least because, oh my gosh, I should screenshot this. Doors. Wait, wait, wait. First, you have to talk about the Indian whatever dance they were doing that makes you think of the planet of... Yeah, the Endor. Endor. Yeah, Endor. I was like... Why do I feel like I'm on Endor? Yeah, with yeah, really they, tall Ewoks. Yeah, we didn't bring yeah. that up. It was the festival at the right. beginning. And that yeah, was at the, the beginning. To, yeah, to ward off the evil spirit. Yeah, imaging. which interestingly, I, and I forgot to bring this up when we were talking about that originally, but the fact that they're doing all those really big close-ups on the, the masks and all of that is also a callback to no theater. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, uh, I guess you could say, Japanese theatricality that's been 
put into this. I even kind of wonder if maybe you were complaining a little bit about some of the acting at the beginning. The overacting. <laughs> that, that, yeah, like, that that's maybe totally that crazy. had been part that's of it as well because I know in Kabuki, Kabuki Theater, theater they act, their acting is big. It's a little over the top. Well, so I wonder if maybe was, that had been part of it. That was definitely part of it. I hope. Let's just say that. Yeah. <laughs> but no, the one that felt really obvious is we get to the end when Daimajin is going through and slaughtering the bad guys and they rush back to a castle to take refuge and the emblem that's on the front of the door looks just like the insignia for the rebel alliance except it's not red i mean it looks so much like it you would think Dae could sue george lucas i mean it looks so much alike yeah which i said fight against the empire <laughs> wait <laughs> <laughs> yeah about that <laughs> But no, well, so we were talking about before we got on our little Star Wars sidetrack because you know check that off of your you know off of your MIFV bingo Star Wars reference. (laughs) If you're playing the drinking game, (laughs) I haven't developed the drinking game quite yet. Although it'd probably be like take a shot every time my producer interrupts me. Anyway, and also take another shot when there's a Star Wars reference. Yeah. So we were talking about the nail. So he comes to life, and he actually leaves the nail in his head the whole time. And then we get to the end, and we get more cross imagery. Because there's debris from one of the structures as it's been collapsed while Daimachine goes on essentially his rampage. And he takes Sanosuke, but he doesn't crush him in his hand. That's not enough. That's too good for Sanosuke. (laughs) He puts this guy against this cross-shaped beam. Pulls the nail out of his head. And I was telling you, because you even said, it's like, is he just going to leave the nail in his head? And I said, wait for it. <laughs> and then we get right up to that scene. And I said, hey, Joy, just watch. <laughs> pulls out the nail. He went, oh, and then he sticks the guy with it. To which I said, Straight. shot through the heart. Yeah, it, it <laughs> You're definitely too through the heart. Yeah. <laughs> but then I was like, wait, never mind. Nailed in the heart? I'm sure Bon Jovi doesn't mind, but (laughs) but still, it's interesting that hey guys, hey guys, I nailed it! (laughs) Congratulations! Actually, got a line in there, Joe. Good job! (laughs) Woo! Yeah. Although Jimmy still gave you the sad trombone, I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, it's not over until well. Look at this one. Oh, there. Uh, yeah, I uh, I think Joe will be able to vouch that the well hell hath no fury. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> I just refuse to be the quivering individual in the corner. Give me the sword, give me the lightsaber, <laughs> and you better be ready. <laughs> what was that line from Firefly? Is the next time we meet, <laughs> you'll uh, we'll be facing each other. You'll be awake and have a gun in your hand. That was <laughs> something like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that sounds like joy right now. <laughs> but, but Jimmy, you look up the line. I don't have time right now. Yeah. But, <laughs> but anyway, I just found that interesting. We were talking about earlier in this movie, we had a couple of our innocent characters being crucified. They weren't nailed, but they uh-huh. were tied. But it, the imagery is striking. And then at the end, our bad guy, the one who truly is guilty, is essentially crucified. But he's only crucified with one giant nail right into his chest. 
And I find that fascinating because it kind of turns, I guess, the popular image of or the popular concept of the cross on its ear, even though it was a method of execution. The most famous person to ever be crucified is Jesus, and he was innocent. But now here, essentially, it's the same thing. Except in this case, it is the wrath of a god being poured out on this guy. Yeah, it is very interesting imagery. And, like, we could even go into the whole part of mercy and all of that. But the imagery is, like, stark different because the innocent people are saved. And the evil person, quote-unquote, is put on a cross with a nail through his heart. <laughs> Yeah, well, and that's the other thing that's very interesting about these movies. You saw it tonight, is they go out of their way to make these as unsympathetic of villains as possible. Yeah, I think one of the requirements for the main two actors, like the, the Lord and his first-in-command, is a permanent scowl. Yeah, I mean, they had some serious scowl face going on. Now, can you imagine what the auditions for that must have been like? You know, they, they come in, it's like, okay, you look the part, you can act. Now we have a question. Can you maintain that scowl for the entire movie? <laughs> How many hours a day can you maintain that anger scowl face? <laughs> and can you do it sounding like you're talking normally? Because <laughs> I certainly can't. <laughs> I find it interesting because... It's definitely um, an evil versus evil. You can look at it that way, yeah. Because it's supposed to be an evil demon god, according to that. And it's only a, an innocent woman that stops. Well, he, she starts it and stops it. That is very interesting. It, it, you know, it just occurs to me that Daimajin was about to crush a child, so it wasn't like it was the innocence of a child. No, it was It was her. It was her self-sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. His innocence wasn't a thing, because if it was, they would have stopped at the villagers. He wouldn't have started to go after the villagers. I will tell you right now, in the next two films, they will play around with that concept a little bit. And if you thought there was a lot of biblical imagery in this one, wait till you get to the second one, let me tell you. <laughs> but speaking of the bad guys, you know what else I thought was, was interesting that separated the bad guys from everybody else? Only they used firearms. Yeah, that is also very interesting. Well, it's like a honor thing almost. No, I, well, and not only that, but they were. At, we'll get into this a little bit more. But firearms were introduced by yeah. Westerners, by outsiders. Yeah, and it would only be the lords that would have enough money to buy the firearms from the foreigners. Well, and he did say that he was getting ready to try and take over the capital. Yeah, he was yeah, that was the other thing. It wasn't this guy. These bad guys. They were so evil, they weren't just going to limit themselves to just taking over one area, one castle, one lordship. Going for the country. Yeah, which tells me this guy's got resources, or at least a lot of ambition. Well, they said that he took almost all of their food, all of their... Pro I mean, literally, they were starving, yeah, being he, worked to the bone. Yeah, the, the lord, or the evil warlord. Sanosuke. Yeah, Sanosuke. Sanosuke. I keep wanting to call him Sanosuke, but... <laughs> I know. <laughs> that Kenshin fan just keeps wanting to come out, right? Yeah. So, Sanosuke took all, almost all their food, almost all their money, almost all of their resources, period. Which, which, as we'll get into, is actually historically accurate. Yeah. Worked the villagers like slaves to build whatever the heck they were building with stone. It was and, a gate. Oh, it was a gate. That was the last thing to... 
for him to do before he enters on the capital. Yeah, he smashed through the gate. Yeah, he would have a lot of resources built up after ten years of oppressing the people. So I guess even though it's really only brought up in one line, the stakes are a little bit bigger than just one lordship potentially. Yeah. Yeah, and they kind of like breeze over that. They're like, "Oh, if they don't stop him, they'll lose everything." Mm-hmm. This isn't as black and white as a good versus evil story. Like this it's is really the evil. yeah. This the is only the, evil gen- the, the characters who are good are very good. The yeah. the Lord's children, the priestess, Kogenta. Yeah. They are all good. You, It's designed so that you definitely like there's, these people. There's like five good characters, and then the rest are either indifferent or flat-out evil. Yeah. And there's a kind of a spot. There was just one scene where all the things that we've been talking about, how dishonorable they are using firearms. We could infer yeah. that. Oh, yeah. And their complete disregard for spiritual beliefs. And then all the characters having faith in the mountain god. The scene where, and I can't remember his name, but the one of the higher-ups for Sanosuke goes to see Shinobu, yeah. confronts her, and he has a rifle with him, yeah, and starts saying, like, I can shoot you right now with this rifle, and what is your, it, you know, and if your mountain god really is who you I say he is. I think that yeah. was Sanosuke. <laughs> oh, okay. Himself. Okay. Yeah, it was. Okay. And he says, the mountain god will save you. And her faith is absolute. She says, you can't do anything that she keeps saying. If you keep doing this, you're going to bring the wrath of the commie down on you. He pulls the trigger. Then he laughs and he says, it wasn't loaded. But if it was, you'd be dead. And I'm sitting there looking at this thing. He's like, dude. You just proved it. Yeah. I was wondering about that too. I'm like, why would you do that? Yeah. What does this prove? It proves nothing. You just tried to scare her and you failed. Yeah. It doesn't disprove her faith in the mountain god at all. You're basing it on a hypothetical. If it was loaded, you would be dead. And then, interestingly, he does kill her, but not with the rifle. Yeah. I think it's because he wanted to kill her slowly. I just found the whole scene fascinating. It is fascinating because, like, I know, you know, you guys are like, well, it's not faith, but for lack of a better term, let's call it faith. He was trying to break her faith, break her beliefs. Yeah. Well, Which is he's, interesting he's, because it's like he's so blind, like to he's so materialistic that he sees faith in any higher power, yeah, as an opposition to his leadership. Anything you say that is stronger than him, he sees yeah. as something to kill, destroy. Going back, Hitchhiker's Guide reference. If there's something bigger than my ego in the room, I want it caught and shot. <laughs> <laughs> I never. Thought that Zaphod Beeblebrox would be brought up in the same breath as Time Machine. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> I want to cut that in a trailer with it, like just the line from Zaphod in from like the audiobook recording with like that guy, like pointing it at the priestess. <laughs> <laughs> if there's a, like a, like a fan at it, yeah. If there's anything big, uh, you know, if there's anything b- bigger than my ego in this room, I want it found immediately and shot. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So we've covered a lot of stuff about this movie, but before we wrap up, unless you guys have some final thoughts that you want to offer, I'll just ask this one more question. I should have asked it actually at the beginning of the segment, but apparently today I'm a terrible host. What did you think of this 
movie. Like if you were reviewing this, we're not a review podcast, but if we if we were re- going to review this movie, where would you land on it? So going into it, I knew it was something to do with a monster, but outside of that, I honestly didn't remember. We talked about it at one point, like, I don't know, months ago. So I really honestly totally forgot what the plot was about, so I was totally coming in it. Blind. Blind. I mean, totally, utterly blind. And I'm like, okay, so, like, it was kind of slow in the beginning, but the more we talked about it, the more I was so fascinated by the storyline. Because, okay, yeah, in the end, the good guys win and the bad guys lose. But it was a very interesting route. <laughs> it's kind of like a detour. And so it wasn't your typical ABCD plot, which I appreciate because sometimes those can get like a little bit obnoxious or boring or it's so predictable. But you really didn't know if any of the good guys were going to die. You really didn't know. I mean, you knew like... And I'm really surprised Kogenta survived because he was tortured very terribly for about two days. I really thought, because it's been a while since I had seen it before when we watched it tonight, I honestly thought, I was like, does he die? I'm pretty sure he dies. And then I ended up being wrong. But my gosh, that guy has, yeah, that guy's either too stubborn to die or he's, as Optimus Prime said, made of sterner stuff. (laughs) My only, my only. He reminds me of Kenshin. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. The only frustration is. The uh, endurance. Yeah. (laughs) The translation of the... <laughs> I know, we're almost done, I promise. <laughs> Hold a calm down. You'll get to see Gamera later. Come here. Um, <laughs> is the translation of the statue and the god made very, very confusing when you're trying to figure out what's happening. Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't until we discussed it afterwards that I'm like, oh, the demon possessed the statue. Oh. Like, it kind of clicked, but because of the translation being a little bit harder to understand at times, and I love anime, so I'm used to reading subtitles, it just, like, kind of confused me for a moment. There was a few words that weren't subtitled in there. Oh, yeah, and that, too. Like, (laughs) I caught one, the word for seal, and that's how I knew that the god of the mountain sealed the demon, but it wasn't actually subtitled correctly in the movie. That's interesting. So yeah, that part made it a little bit harder to understand parts of the plot. Like, why would the god that they're praying to destroy them? Yeah, it's, oh, it's, it's a, not really a god. Yeah, it's I a mean, pretty big distinction. Like, the god is protecting them from the demon that's in the mountain. And yeah, versus... The demon woke up and decided to take out whatever was in front of him, which just happened to be the evil lord first, and then to the village. Yeah. Right, so that part, it really made it harder to understand. Yeah, the and I will say, even though I don't want to spoil it too much for you guys, I will tell you that the second film, it plays around with some of these ideas a little bit more, but the biggest problem that the second film has is that it's very much a rehash of this one. The third one goes in a new direction. Other than some thematic elements, the second one will be a lot like this one. But the things that are different actually... Make it better. Well, not necessarily better, but they play around with some things that make Daimajin seem a little bit more gray, I yeah. guess you could say. Not just... Okay. And then by the time you get to the third movie, he's even there's even less gray, if that makes sense. I don't want to spoil too much for you. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So going into this, it was I knew that 
villagers were oppressed, somebody cries out, and then the monster awakens to take things down. That was the essential plot that I knew ahead of time. I was just surprised at how long the villagers had to suffer before something got done about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the more I think about it, the more I'm, it's it's not your... He's itchy. <laughs> Thankfully, we don't have kaiju fleas. <laughs> yeah. Those would be kind of scary, Levick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was one found on Godzilla back in the 80s, but uh, it got killed with a cleaver. Um, anyway, you were saying... It's definitely not your American style plot. No, it's not. It's it's probably it's I would say out of all the movies. I mean, I've covered a lot of American films so far on here. I mean, you guys. The last time you guys were here was for King Kong Thirty Three. Yeah, and so I've covered plenty of American films, but I've been doing a lot of Japanese films lately. And I think honestly, out of all the Japanese films I've covered so far, this is the most Japanese. Yeah, out of all of them, I find it interesting that the plot is much slower than. Your traditional American film. I don't think that American audiences, without having a little bit of explanation beforehand, would have the patience to get to the end. Yeah, I think this movie is helped by the fact that it's relatively short. Yeah. Uh-huh. So the slow pacing, I don't think wear it. If, it, doesn't if wear. it would be something that would be problematic, it doesn't wear on you as much. Yeah, it's it's not. It is not a three-hour film. People. No. So, no. I mean, it, this is not Endgame or. <laughs> I was thinking of the of Seven Samurai because that is a three-hour epic. Okay, yeah, Seven Samurai is really freaking slow, but if you can get through, it's fantastic. Yes. So that's the same story structure, but stretched out to a movie that's more than twice as long. Yes. Well, <laughs> it I is. think also you still had not so much character development, but story development, even though it was a slower story. Like, yeah. you still were constantly learning things. Like you still were learning how they were dealing, how they were coping. Like the kid's mom was sick and he and the husband couldn't go. The kid's mom dies. The husband couldn't go. I mean, literally, you have kids orphaned in a sense without being orphaned. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, that's another thing that you'll see going forward with the rest of the movies is there will be other children in them, and they are as far away from Kenny's as you can get. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, just Kenny got really annoying with the Gamera films. Tell me about it. Uh, what I also appreciated in this, it, it's a very Japanese story in the sense of if you don't pay attention to your spiritual beliefs, it's going to come back to bite you. Yes. I think that's a very key theme. It's a very key this. theme for this. So all the villagers still kept their faith in the mountain god. The priests did. All the way to the point of death, I know. Yeah. All the way to the point of death without really any relief from, you know, no. God himself or who they perceived as God. And all the evil people, yeah, I don't really believe in that legend stuff. You're just doing this to incite a rebellion. Well, as soon as he took over, he said no more. Yeah, and it wasn't like mm-hmm. the old lord, who is also, you know, on the good side, sent his servant Sanosuke. Or Son- Sano- <laughs> Sanosuke. Sanosuke. <laughs> <laughs> Down to um, comfort the villagers because the Moji and the de- demon god was trying to get out of the mountain. And there was rumblings. Like, there was, like, seismic earthquakes. Yeah, that's the other thing that's fascinating. Is like I said, the Majin's presence is felt throughout. Yeah. Because he keeps affecting the elements. Yeah. You know, first it's just distant rumblings. And then they drive the nail into his head and it causes a storm and an earthquake. Yeah, but they didn't drive it into the head. They broke the seal. 
that's that's the thing that got missed because of the not translated part. Mm-hmm. Is that there was a seal and the seal got broken by the nail, mm-hmm. and now you have to deal with the wrath of the demon god. Mm-hmm. And I don't know much about demon god in in the mythology, but I'm guessing that a pure woman being sacrificed to them or offering herself up to them appeases them. So that's uh, that's the, a very common thing. Yeah, the, I would the say. princess who's obviously seen no one other than her brother and their sort of manservant that helped them get out of the castle when they were young obviously hasn't felt love yet and not married off so she's a pure virgin to sacrifice mm-hmm. and she offers herself up twice mm-hmm. and it's when she offers herself up is when he responds and interestingly she never has to go through with it it's just the fact that she offers <laughs> just the willingness yeah just the willingness which is Actually, really fascinating because I think it would have been easy for this film to go the really dark <laughs> route where she does say jump off the waterfall, and yeah. that's what summons Daimajin. If it didn't go that dark route, there would be nothing to stop him at the end. Yeah, that's true. Okay, Jimmy, I'll agree with you there. Wrath of the Demon God actually sounds like a great movie title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is interesting because one of the alternate titles for I believe it is the third movie in this trilogy was Wrath of Daimajin. Well, the Wrath of Large Demon God. Yep. (laughs) The only other part that it was like just one line is that they're like, your tears stopped him. Mm -hmm. It wasn't okay, so she covered and protected the child, was willing to sacrifice herself, but what stopped him caused him to retreat. Or in this case, turn to dust. Yeah. Yeah. She cried at his feet. Yeah. Like, and the tears touched him, and it destroyed his ability to use either that or calmed him. It was like a stab. Whatever you want to call it, it stopped him. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just her willingness to sacrifice. It was her heart being broken. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's also having to do with your heart being broken. I think it's fascinating. And like I said, you'll see these ideas, these themes continue to be developed Throughout the trilogy. The characters don't come back. It's very much an anthology trilogy. Each movie is a self-contained story. The only connecting thread is the statue. Yeah. And that great evil happens and the statue is beseeched to intervene. I'm actually really glad you guys enjoyed it. There was a few moments when we were watching I was a little uncertain. I was pretty sure that I would at least be able to appreciate it if not enjoy it. Because I was like a good samurai film. Oh yeah. You know what the one thing we did bring up was in the credits? <laughs> one guy was credited for sword fights. So apparently every sword fight, he did both sides. I'm just saying, <laughs> that, that is, that's what my takeaway. But yes, I do love sword fighting and um, anime. And um, even before I had met Joe, I was all into sword play, fencing and all of that. So it wasn't that much of a lead for me to enjoy it. Because sometimes, yeah, they're cheesy, but it's always interesting, and I'm always willing to try new movies or, you know, a genre. Jimmy, you are asking for trouble by saying you don't believe she can sword fight. Trust me. I'm sorry, yeah. Joy. All I can say is, ask Joe. That's all I gotta say. Speed beats strength. Yeah. yeah and, uh, I'm sure your arguments usually get settled with sword fight. <laughs> Surprisingly very few. Yeah, it's only the large ones that get escalated to the nerve sorts. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say I may have provided some of the instruments. 
Well, we yes. had to switch to Nerf swords because, you know, if you use real swords, you, you might actually, like, stab somebody. And the idea is to kill your friend, not to hurt them. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> that, that's actually the fencing motto. Yeah, that's actually the fencing motto. Yeah, I know you thought that was really funny, Teddy. <laughs> okay. All right, well, we got to get him to Gamera before he goes crazy. All right, yeah, so well, we'll take a quick little break, and then we'll come back for the Toku topic. All right. So, with this being a period piece, I figured it would be wise of me to do some historical research on this. And I know, Joe, because of your fascination with Japan, that you garnered a, at least a little bit of knowledge yeah, about its history. Yeah, I think the history is one period before I have any real knowledge of. So, like, the Tokugawa period is where I start my sort of knowledge of yes. Japan and move on. Yeah, the and the Tokugawa era came... Just after this. Yeah, just after this. Kinda. There's an intervening period. But yeah, we'll be talking about the Sengoku period, which leads up to the formation of the Tokugawa Shogunate, which then controlled Japan for several hundred years. Yeah, close to 300 years. And then after that, we'll also talk about one of the big events that happens during this period, which was the introduction of Christianity to Japan. So a lot of very interesting things happened during this era. What's interesting is that they never actually establish in the movie at what point it takes place. I had to figure that out through my research. Let's start with the actual Sengoku period itself. As usual, I over-prepare for this podcast, so I will try to get through what I think is the most important things to talk about with this. But interestingly, while doing my research, I actually found a lot of really interesting details that go to show that the the filmmakers really did their homework on this. Yes, it's a fantasy film with a giant living statue, but they actually portrayed the period pretty accurately from what I can gather. The Sengoku period lasted from about 1467 to 1568, so just over 100 years. There is an intervening period that leads into the Tokugawa period, that is usually called the Azuchi Momoyama period. And it's at that point that the great unifiers of Japan, most notably Nobunaga Oda and Tokugawa himself, that's when they come onto the scene and they unify Japan. Yeah, because the imperial family was supposed to have control. They, there was too many warlords warring. Yeah. yeah. The, those warlords that you're talking about were actually called Damyos. Yeah. So there were quite a few of them around. They were carving out their own territory and asserting themselves in different regions, going to war with each other. There's actually one of the names for this era of Japan is the Warring States period. Yeah. Because it was a constant state of civil war. The daimyos were always trying to conquer each other's territory. And it was just a constant back and forth. It was almost unending warfare. Yeah, and the emperor could control it. And that's when the great unifiers came in. Mm-hmm. And when they unified it, they're like, well, we're going to keep the peace by having a military government for now. Mm-hmm. You still have sort of the spiritual aspect of power, but we're going to keep the day-to-day running of things to make sure things don't get screwed up. Mm-hmm. And this was also a period when the, the capital was in Kyoto, or at this point it was called Ayenkyo. 
And it started actually with what was called the Onin War. Have you heard of I think I've mentioned the Onin War on the show before when I was talking about the Three Treasures. You can correct me on that later, Jimmy, if need be. That was in the, the mid-1400s. Lasted about 10 years from what I was seeing. The Sengoku period got its name from Japanese historians because of an unrelated warring states period in China. And like I said, it was brought to an end by the three great unifiers who were Nobunaga, Hideyoshi, and Ieyasu. So there was a, a shogunate at this time, the Ashikaga shogunate that actually started up in the 1300s, 1338 to be exact. They held control over the central part of Japan. That's where a lot of the bureaucracy was. Yeah. And then, the, as you pointed out, we've mentioned this already, the other neighboring states were semi-independent. And interestingly, Damyo, I mentioned the Damyo, the warlords, that Damyo literally means great names. Yeah. Had their own personal armies of samurai. Samurai but, start to really start to shine in that 13, 14. Yeah, and that's interesting that you bring this up because one of the articles I looked at said that this was a great period of what it called myth-making. This is when the samurai became larger than life. Larger than life. These yeah. mythic heroes, not unlike medieval European knights. knights yeah. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, I guess to a certain extent, although this era did not last very long in the United States, cowboys. Yeah. <laughs> the, the cowboy era, interestingly, only lasted, I think, about 20 years, really. Okay. You know, the end of the Civil War to about the, the 1880s, 1890s, somewhere around there. Oh. It wasn't very long, but it left... Obviously, a very indelible impression on American culture. Yeah, and the early 20th century Japan took the, the samurai, the idea of it, and then they, they sort of warped it to have a national pride. Nationalism, which you then see in World War II. Yeah, which brought pretty much directly World War II. Yeah. The, their role in that. Mm-hmm. You know how you know, in this movie we saw a lord being overthrown and all of that? That was actually something that was very common. There was a phenomenon of this where you had new rulers who were overthrowing the established order and of branch families. And this was actually a practice that earned a name. It was called Gekokujo, which means those below overthrowing those above. Huh. So yeah. I would venture to say we saw exactly that in this movie. Right. Yeah. And then because of all of this, again... Japan's a patchwork of feudal states. So instead of the rule of law, you have the rule of force going on at this time in Japan. Yeah. And the thing is, is the position of Damyo became hereditary unless it was challenged by other commanders. Again, kind of like what we see in this movie, where the two kids are trying to reclaim their father's lordship. Yeah. It was supposed to be given to them, but then this usurper comes in. And... (laughs) Just like we had saw the movie, we talked about all the enslavement and all these gobbling up of resources, but the daimyo's riches came from commerce, trade, and taxes that were yeah. imposed upon the peasants. So, yeah, they taxed the people to death. That's how they got rich. Mm-hmm. This was such a turbulent time that, interestingly, there was an anonymous poem that was written around 1500 that actually captured the mood of those times quite well. It reads a little bit like a haiku, I will admit. The The poem goes, A bird with one body but two beaks pecking itself to death. Huh. That's very interesting. Yeah, so one land but two warlords <laughs> trying to kill each other. As you would expect, again, just like we saw in the movie tonight, treachery and ignoble acts were 
par for the course at this time. Yeah, the samurai may not have been the noble, moral people that you think of when you get to the 18th century. During this time, samurai and ronin were the same thing. There was no dishonorable versus honorable. It was all mixed in. Yeah, there are several warring clans at this point, all vying for power. Clans like the Takeda and the Imagawa, and they had all ruled under both the Kamakura and the Muromochi Bakufu, and they were constantly trying to expand their influence at this point. That's just a few examples. And there was, I already mentioned one phenomenon. There, uh, at this time, there was another one, this phenomenon of social meritocracy, where you would have subordinates who would reject the status quo and then overthrow the aristocracy. And they called this Gekko Kujo, which yeah. means low conquers high. And just like we saw in this, because war and pillaging was very common, they, there were a lot of castles that were built in here as fortifications against yeah. such things. But because of that, you would have towns that would spring up around some of those castles. One in particular was the Omi Hachiman near Lake Biwa. And interestingly, they were built from wood. And they were still very sturdy fortifications. So wait, the castles were built from wood? Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, they didn't have a lot of stonework for this. They had stone bases, though. Maybe that was another thing that was going on in this movie. They were building a castle. Yeah, because it looked like they were moving the stone for the castle. And if that's what they were waiting on to go take on the leadership of the country, to have a castle. Mm-hmm. So when counterattack came, you had something to defend. Mm-hmm. Some good positions set up for archers, yeah. from what I was reading in my research. But interestingly, not only did you have peasants, I'll get into the, those details here in a little bit, but not only did you have peasants rebelling against the daimyos, there were religious groups that did as well, including some Buddhist sects. Huh. The monks of the Buddhist true pure land formed what were called Ikuiki, which were these rebel groups that sprang up in the Kaga province, and they actually managed to stay independent for about 100 years. That's pretty impressive. Really is impressive. Cities got larger. They would have populations of over 30,000. Wow. One of the other things that happened in this is how the daimyos were able to accrue a lot of power was through commerce outside of Japan. And that so trade was becoming more common. And that allowed the cities to expand and more people started moving to the city. And that brought in missionaries from Catholic Church eventually. (laughs) You're jumping ahead a little bit. (laughs) But then, like I said, to put it succinctly, you had... Some very ambitious warlords that came about later that managed to take all of these warring states and unify them under one central government, which, as I mentioned, was Nobunaka Oda. He was the first one to do it, and then he had a successor named Tomotomi Hideyoshi, and then Iyasu Tokugawa. The thing is, they had very distinct personalities. I came across what's called a senryu, which looks a bit like a poem that was made to describe the three of them and how different that they were. The translations for this poem goes, If the cuckoo does not sing, kill it. If the cuckoo does not sing, coax it. If the cuckoo does not sing, wait for it. Now, this is describing those three unifiers because Oda was known for being ruthless. Toyotomi was known for his resourcefulness. And Tokugawa was known for his perseverance. So that actually plays into a little bit of the evil warlord in the story. He would be more like the first one. Like Oda? Yeah, he'd be like Oda. If the citizens aren't obeying, kill them. Yeah, pretty much. 
like I said, at this point, there's a lot of things that are happening in Japan at this period. But one of the most noteworthy things is this is when Christianity reached Japan. Thanks, as you mentioned, Joe, was Portuguese missionaries. Specifically, interestingly, Jesuits. Yeah, which is a little unfortunate for the people who believed in Christianity at that time. <laughs> well, actually, Christianity managed to gain a pretty good foothold in the country for about a hundred years. Yeah, it was during the Tokugawa period where there was big purges against Christians that were still there. Like, they already kicked all the missionaries out, and then they were trying to kill any Christian they could find. Yeah, which I'll be getting into here, actually, in a little bit. But not only did the Europeans bring Christianity with them, they also brought firearms. Again, just like I was talking about yeah. with the movie. Weirdly enough, sometimes Christianity and the firearms went together. Yeah, and the same, like, the uh, diplomatic package, like the entourage. It's like you get the firearms, and here's a couple of missionaries to teach the people about God, and here's a trade agreement that's yeah. probably pretty unfair to you. Mm-hmm. Did you know who the first missionary to Japan was? Uh, no. His name is Francis Xavier. He's actually a Spaniard. Huh. Mm-hmm. He was a, actually a founding member of the Jesuits, who are called the Society of Jesus. And interestingly, and this is something I didn't know, despite the fact that, hello, raised in the church, the Jesuits were the first order to specifically make missionary work their purpose. Huh. We probably didn't know that because we're Protestant, not Catholic, so. <laughs> This is true. But I, you would have thought I would have learned about this in college. Went to a Christian university, after all. Well, there was pre-Reformation and post-Reformation. You mm -hmm. probably took posts like me. I did. Here's an interesting story for you. Before Xavier went to Japan, he went to Malaysia, and he met a young Japanese man there named Anjiro, or Yajiro, depending on what source you look at, who was curious about Christianity. He was from Satsuma, which today is the Kagoshima Prefecture, which is just south of Kyushu. What's crazy is Andrew got implicated for murder, which is why he fled to Malaysia. And there he learned Portuguese and gained an interest in Christianity. And then that interest, combined with Andrew's stories about Japan, was what made Xavier want to go there to spread the gospel. Yeah, Japan even today is a dark place for the gospel. Yeah, it's about 1% of the population. Less. The sources I was looking at were saying, yeah, I think 1% or less than 1%. The so, last I heard, which is granted 10 years out of date, it was like 35 out of every 1,000. Mm -hmm. So like 0.3%. Mm -hmm. One of the churches I used to go to actually supported missionaries in Japan. And so we got to hear some stories about what they were doing. So Andrew and Xavier, it's almost like the Apostle Paul and the, where were some of the young guys who would go with him, like Barnabas, going with him. And so Andrew actually served as Xavier's mediator and his translator. There was one point that Xavier actually wrote, I asked Andrew whether the Japanese would become Christians if I went with him to this country, and he replied that they would not do so immediately but would first ask me many questions and see what I knew. Above all, they would want to see whether my life corresponded with my teaching. Uh, yeah. And let me tell you, there was a lot of resistance to Xavier and the faith when he was there. They were not easily converted. Most yeah. of them were already Buddhist and Shinto. Which they believe in many, many spirits and gods. Yeah. So. Well, and there were some things that actually made things really complicated. 
like Francis had to combat this idea that the Japanese had that a god who had created everything, including evil, couldn't be good. That was how they were understanding things. And the concept of hell was also a struggle. They couldn't accept the idea that their ancestors were living in hell. Although, from what I was looking at, not only was there a language barrier, there were some people who actually were not fond of the language. Some of the Europeans, <laughs> I think they called it like the devil's tongue or something like that. It was, they were not very fond of it. Yeah, Japanese is not the easiest language to learn. So, thankfully, Xavier was able to gain some notoriety in Japan. He was allowed to preach in a lot of different places. The European missionaries were actually pretty impressed with the Japanese people, but there were some cultural differences that they had to get around. This was some funny stuff that I was finding in here. The Europeans were limiting their meat intake to fit in with the Japanese. But here's something kind of, I thought was kind of funny now. The Europeans couldn't be persuaded to bathe daily like the Japanese did, because for them they only did it weekly or something. Uh, well, every fortnight, so every two weeks. Yeah. They compromised by doing it every week. Yeah. That seems like a weird concept to be. <laughs> well, European cleanliness was not a high standard. No, it was then. not. But unfortunately, there were some hostile relationships between them and the Buddhist clergy. Yes. They didn't much care for them. There were some interfaith friendships, but the Jesuits often accused the Buddhist monks of being lazy, among other things, that might be a little unsavory for a family show. I'll put it at that. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the Buddhists got mad at them because they thought they were spreading lies. And then some issues that they had with trying to translate certain things into Japanese proved problematic because... And I think you and I had actually talked about this multiple times over the years because you actually used to work with somebody who was formerly a missionary to Japan. Yeah, when I worked at a church camp over a summer and the missionary in furlough was from Japan mm -hmm. and had been there for over 10 years. Yeah. So one early translation error that they had was Andro. Yeah. You know, I mentioned earlier, he translated the name God as Dainichi, which is a Buddhist deity. Uh, Oops which led people to think the priests were from a new Buddhist sect, and he didn't figure this out for two years. Yeah, that would be an issue. So then he, he tried tra changing it to Deus, or in Japanese it would be Deusu, but that sounded too close to Daiusu, which means big lie in Japanese. And then they ended up settling on Tenshu, which means Lord of Heaven. But they also kept finding that a lot of their translations had Buddhist connotations, so yeah. they tried to use Latin or Portuguese words instead for new ideas. Yeah, and they also found, like, even in this movie, they were using the god of the mountain as Kami. Yeah. And it was a small G. Mm -hmm. Or actually, they were using it as a big G. They were using it as a big G. One of the issues even today in spreading the gospel to Japan would be Jesus would be one of many gods. He wouldn't mm -hmm. be the one god above them all that created them all. Yeah. It's hard to get that into their heads. So then just 10 months after Xavier came, the stance toward Christians started to change and they were prohibited from proselytizing. Yep. And then after two and a half years in Japan, Xavier left, said farewell to the country, which he described as, quote, the only country yet discovered in these regions where there is hope of Christianity permanently taking root. And then he died a year of illness on a small Chinese island a year later. Now, the first Japanese lord, so I guess he would be a daimyo, to convert to Christianity, interestingly, was a guy named Omura Sumatata, and he had the territory in northwestern Kyushu. 
the Jesuits went to him and they said that he would, quote, permit the law of God to be preached in his land. Great spiritual and temporal prophets would follow him therefrom. That's what the Jesuits promised him. Yeah. So even though it seemed like he was being motivated by material gain, he was pretty zealous for his faith. He would go around and he would burn temples and shrines. His actions did provoke a revolt from a rival family member. Say so that doesn't sound like it would bode well for Christianity in the long term. <laughs> yeah, not really. Interestingly, the Jesuits spent a lot of time in Nagasaki. And at the time, Nagasaki was just a small fishing village. But it started to grow because of all of the foreign activity that it was attracting. Yeah. Now, we mentioned Nobunaga Oda earlier. He didn't become a Christian, but he did patronize them. He was favorable, I guess you could say, toward them. Yeah. Because by being favorable toward the missionaries, he was able to trade with the Portuguese. And he got guns. Yeah. Which came in handy. I'm not sure which one of the three great ones was not favorable, but... We'll get to that. Yeah. But interestingly, he also wasn't fond of Buddhism. He thought the Buddhists were hypocrites because they, quote, preached about suffering while living in luxury. (laughs) So he was nice to the Christians because he had no love for the Buddhists. And they gave him trouble. The Buddhists did. Like we mentioned with the Iko-Iki. Yeah. There was also a guy Xavier met named Otomo Soren, who was the lord of Bungo, which is in eastern Kyushu. Converted to Christianity, was very zealous. I found some very interesting things about him, but for the sake of time, I'll skip over him for now. One of the most important things to know about him was that he started the first official Japanese embassy to Europe. Oh. And it actually went and toured in Europe a little bit. But then Hideyoshi, the second of the unifiers, in 1587 issued an edict to expel the missionaries. Though not all the Europeans. That came later. Yeah. He was concerned about the lords converting and then forcing their subjects to convert. And then that would create conflicting loyalties because he wasn't sure if the samurai would be loyal to their lords or to their faith. And then that ended up leading to, interestingly, what are called the 26 Martyrs of Japan. There was a Spanish galleon in 1596 that crashed off of Shigoku. The pilot of that ship claimed that Japan was going to become a Spanish colony and said that the missionaries come as the king of Spain's advance guard. Oh, well. Yeah. That was the wrong thing to say. Yeah. So then Hideyoshi, once he heard that, he had a list of 4,000 people, and then he got 24 leading Christians from that region. Then he marched them all the way to Nagasaki to face execution. It was a 450-mile journey. There were even a couple of uh, people who tried to comfort the prisoners, including a 12-year-old boy, and they ended up making them guilty along with them. And then, take a wild guess! Crucifixion. Yep, they were crucified on a hilltop in Nagasaki. There's some debate as to whether or not it was meant this way, but you could look at the fact that Hideyoshi crucified these martyrs as being kind of ironic. Yeah. Wouldn't be the first Christian martyrs to be crucified, obviously. Now, Tokugawa, he was cautious about Christianity at first. And then in 1600, have you guys ever heard of the novel or the TV series Shogun? Yeah, I've heard of it. Okay, I've actually seen it. It's very long. (laughs) TV miniseries. In 1600, shortly before the Battle of Sekigahara, there was an English pilot named William Adams. And he was the basis for the protagonist in that novel. And he valued his knowledge. Because of his own prejudices against the Catholics, because he was a Protestant. 
But unfortunately, that fed the guy's fears of Catholic missionaries. Yeah. And then, as you mentioned before, this is when persecution really started to pick up a lot. It was sporadic between 1613 and 1630. Then in 1632, there were 55 Christians martyred in Nagasaki. Here we go again. And it became known as the Great Gena Martyrdom. At this time, Catholicism was outlawed in Japan. Yeah. And this started an era where you had people who in Japan who were practicing Christianity in secret, and they were called Kagure Kurishiten, which meant hidden Christians. So they were finding all these clever ways to practice their faith without being noticed. Like they had actually figured out how to make Mary statues that looked like statues that would be used for Buddha, for Buddhism. Yeah. I had alluded before a few times and you kept bringing up Kenshin. There is a Kenshin connection to all of this. Oh, yeah. There was a rebellion that wasn't started by Christians, but there was a Japanese Christian convert named Amakusa Shiro who got involved with it and ended up being a leader in that rebellion. It was a peasant rebellion because a lot of the things that we saw depicted in the movie were happening to the people Yep. in real life. And he became a leader in this movement. That's noteworthy for us as fans of Veroni Kenshin because they do a storyline. Now, mind you, yep. you know, Kenshin takes place several hundred years after this period. It's about 200 years. But they had a character who was claiming to be the second coming of this Christian rebellion leader. Yeah. Which also, when you watch the fan subs, has one of your favorite lines of all time in it. Yes, I'm sorry I have nothing to beat her with instead of, I'm sorry, I have nothing to treat her with. (laughs) Best speed subbing mistake ever. (laughs) Another point for cancellation. Yes. (laughs) And there's a lot that could be said. I found a lot of interesting information about that rebellion and about Amakusa. But uh, again, for the sake of time... I won't go into it. If you want to see more of my research, I will give it to Jimmy and he will put it in his blog. But I did find out about some of the things that were happening to these poor Christians as part of their persecution. That's actually kind of horrifying, to be honest. Yeah, it was not a good time to be found out as one of those hidden Christians. No, it was not. And your neighbors would turn you in. Mm -hmm. It's not like, oh, the nice boy next door. It's... Oh, the nice boy next door is worshiping that god. Turn them into the government. Yeah. Have you ever heard of fumie? It means stepping on pictures. No. This was a set of tools that the shogunate had. They were small pictures of Jesus or Mary. They would be made out of metal, stone, wood. And then as a sign to see where a person's loyalty was, they would make them step on. And if they did it, that means that their loyalty was not to that faith. Yeah, that makes sense. And this actually, interestingly, inspired a part of Gulliver's Travels, the novel, where Japan is the only real country that Gulliver visits, and he asked the emperor to, quote, excuse my performing the ceremony imposed upon my countrymen of trampling on the crucifix. So interestingly, because they couldn't really have priests at this time, you had lay people performing baptisms. Yeah. But they would have to do it, you know, quietly and secretly. Yeah, between not having any formal guidance for 200 years for Christianity, by the time Japan was opened back up, the Christianity that was left was a mix of Catholicism and Shintoism, which mm-hmm. does not bode well. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. But as you were hinting at, all of this actually continued until the Meiji Restoration. Yeah. 
So Christians in Japan were practicing in secret yeah. for several hundred years. And then, interestingly, because of the major restoration, because of the increased westernization and opening up more so to the rest of the world, the persecution stopped yeah, in large died, part. It died down most yeah. places. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting because those same guns that we see in that movie are the same guns that they had when the Americans show up in a modern-style battleship. Commodore Perry. Yeah, Commodore Perry's like... The black ships. You are going to open up, and (laughs) you're going to open up soon. Yeah. And there was a come-to-Jesus moment for the nation of Japan, like, oh, crap, we're going to be a colony unless we do something quick. Yeah. And the first thing we're going to do is get rid of this government that won't let us advance. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, this is something interesting. Did you guys hear about a Martin Scorsese movie from a few years ago called Silence? Yes. It's based on a novel by Shusaku Endo that's based on a lot of this history. I think it's the one where there's like a couple of Catholic priests left. Mm-hmm. That was It's the last of them. Yeah, the last of them. From this period. Yeah. And actually, interestingly, I didn't know this. That's actually the second time it's been made into a movie. It was also made into a movie by a director named Masahiro Shinoda in 1971. I wonder if you can even get that in the States. I know the Martin Scorsese movie is pretty easy to come by. Yeah, I've seen about half of it. It's hard to watch. Is it? You see some of the torture that they give to Christians, and it's just depressing to watch. I'm sure, but now I'm really curious to see it. So like I said... I think a lot of this, the, the people who made this film really did their homework. Because you see a lot of the stuff that I just went over is yeah, all over that background. movie. Yeah. All over that movie. And I even kind of wonder if the fact that Christianity was finding a foothold in this. And they had, I think, it, from what I was looking at my research at one point, about 100,000 converts at one point at their peak. Yeah. And I kind of wonder if maybe some of that influence is also in the film. I mean, we talked about a lot of the biblical parallels and some of the biblical themes that we're seeing in it. Yeah. And I think that probably had a direct influence on it. In that respect, I feel like they did a really good job of blending fiction with nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Like keeping historically somewhat accurate. With twist. the fantasy, yeah. I mean, that's not easy to do. And I feel like they did a very good job. Mm-hmm. And as you guys will find out in the next episode, because this seems like as good a time as any to talk about that, (laughs) you guys will be coming back for the second in the trilogy that is aptly named Return of Daimajine. (laughs) And we'll get into some other aspects of Japanese spirituality when we get there, because you'll see even more of it, different facets of it, in the next film. It'll be quite interesting, I think. Yeah, I think it's something we'll definitely be looking forward to. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Japanese culture is is very interesting in the sense that they have a very deep spiritual connection. Mm -hmm. Deeper than the state of America has today, I believe. Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty sad that the few times in history that we could have really impacted Japan for Christianity, we didn't take it. The worst time did not go that we all passed on was directly after World War II. Mm Mm-hmm. They believed their emperor was literally a descendant of the sun god. Amaterasu. Yeah. And then we basically had the emperor say, nope, I'm just a man. And it left a pretty big spiritual void, and nobody sent them any missionaries. Which is weird. No, it's not. I mean, Pearl Harbor was the equivalent of the 9-11 attacks. This is true. You didn't see a big rush of missionaries to go to Iraq. No, you're right. 
And by the time the wound had healed enough for the Western countries to go in, they had already filled that void with materialism and... Japanese economic miracle. Yeah. The great prosperity that came. Yeah. So anyway, got a lot to look forward to. In the intervening episode, I will be doing yet another mini-analysis on the 1963... Toho classic Atragon, which is actually one of my all-time favorite tokusatsu films. And I think you would enjoy it too, Joe. It's not really a monster movie. It's more like a Jules Vernean sci-fi adventure story, but with a very Japanese flavor. Now, there is a monster in it, but not a whole lot. So it's sort of a kaiju movie, but not really. It's weird. I think you could say that about a lot of Japanese films. Trust me. Tomoyuki Tanaka wanted kaiju in everything because he's like, you know what makes money? Monsters. Put monsters in everything. Monster love stories. (laughs) Don't get me started. There are people like that on Twitter. (sighs) There are Mothra and Godzilla shippers, man. And it's disturbing. Yeah. And hopefully, and I'll talk with him afterward, but hopefully, Joy, you haven't been put off too much by Jimmy, who seems to think he's going to pick a fight with you or something. I don't know what he's got going through his head. Well, I won't give him a second thought. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. But I do know how to start a fight. Will you stop it, Jimmy? Quit saying you don't believe her, okay? Knock it off. Jeez, I'm going to have to separate you two next time you come over. <laughs> Val thinks you profess too much. See what I mean, man? Don't mess with her. Known her a lot longer than you have. Okay, here's yet another insert using Futurian editing technology because I forgot to do something very important, the Patreon shoutouts. In order to make up for that, I'm starting a new way of doing the shoutouts. So let's get to it. Go show Travis, Alexander, Michael, Hamilton, co-hosts of the Kaiju Weekly Podcast, Danny Dumana, author of the Godzilla Novelization Project, Eli Harris, Chris Cook, host of the One Cost Radio Podcast. I hope you guys had fun with that. I'm going to make that a regular feature when I do the Patreon shoutouts just because Let's be honest, that bit on Ultraman Z is just asking to be mimicked when it comes to this. All right, back to the episode. Anyway, we've all had a long day. You guys need to get back to your hotel room over at the Monsterland Resort. I hope you guys have a good stay here. I'll see you next month. All right, sounds good. Thank you for having us. It was a pleasure. Can't wait to have you again. So, in light of that, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is themonsterisla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Sarax, 
Juan Madrano and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Kowatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. It can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcasters. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to spread the word about the show. You can also support MIFV on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! Sayonara!